Well, good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute um, and to the 12th annual Cato Constitution Day Conference. Uh, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host today. Uh, as you notice in your program, uh, there's been a change or two, um, both this program that you may have gotten and the program that's in your package. Uh, first of all, Ilya was invited just uh, about 10 days ago to testify before um, Senator Durbin's committee in the Senate on the Stand Your Ground law and to upbraid the good senator for his um, machinations with respect to the American Legislative Exchange Council and other such doings. But after yesterday's um, shootings, uh, that hearing was canceled, and so Ilya is able to um, moderate the panel, the first panel this morning, and I will then switch to moderating the second panel right after lunch. Uh, in addition, uh, in the original program, uh, we had, um, uh, we had uh, William Consovoy as the second speaker on this panel. He had a funeral to go to this morning, and so um, uh, Roger Clegg uh, has stepped in, uh, who spoke here last year and uh, is um, expert on the subject, and we're delighted that on short notice he was able to step in this morning. Um, we've got a full program for you, uh, reviewing the most important decisions of the court's last term and looking at the cases coming up. And then we will conclude the uh, day with the 12th annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture in Constitutional Thought, which will be delivered this year by Judge David Sentel, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, for a still further discussion of the decisions the court ha handed down, uh, we'll, uh, you can, of course, uh, read the essays in the uh, 12th annual Cato Supreme Court Review that you picked up on your way in, and I urge you to do that, starting with my own essay on equal protection, <laughs> which was the theme that certainly characterized what the court was about uh, this term, especially in its last very busy week. Um, this year, we mark the 226th anniversary of that day in 1787, when the founders concluded their work in Philadelphia, sending the document out to the states to be ratified. Um, reflecting the vision of liberty through limited government that was first set forth in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution sought to establish a more perfect union toward that end. Much, of course, has happened over the ensuing 226 years, some of it good, such as the completion of the Constitution through the addition of the Civil War amendments, some of it extraordinarily problematic, such as the major revisions of the document that took place during the New Deal under the influence of the ideas of the Progressive Era, all without benefit, of course, of constitutional amendment, and all undermining liberty through limited government. Indeed, the critique of that constitutional inversion has animated the work of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies from its inception in 1989, and will be a constant theme through today's program. To give you an overview of the program, let me introduce the man who is primarily responsible for putting it together and for editing the review you have in your hands. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and the coordinator of Cato's growing amicus brief program. He's a graduate of Princeton, the London School of Economics, where he did a master's degree 
and the University of Chicago Law School, after which he clerked for Judge uh, Grady Jolly on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He practiced law with Cleary, Gottlieb, and in Washington with Patton Boggs. Before joining Cato, Ilya was a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues. He's published widely and is a frequent guest on radio and TV, and he lectures at law schools across the country. I'll now turn the program over to him, and I'll return after lunch to moderate our second plan. Please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks, Roger. Uh, I had been preparing, as Roger mentioned, until about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock last night when I got word that the uh, hearing was uh, postponed to face off uh, in the lion's den against Senator Durbin and Al Franken and, and the rest. Uh, this might be a, a tougher audience, I think, uh, savvier in knowledge about the Constitution and so forth. Um, this is the 12th volume of the Cato Supreme Court Review, the nation's first in-depth critique of the Supreme Court just ended. We release this journal every year in conjunction with our annual symposium on Constitution Day, about two and a half months uh, after the previous term ends and two weeks before the next one begins. We're proud of the speed with which we publish this tome. Uh, authors of articles about the last decided cases, like the ones that we're talking about on this panel, have no more than a month to provide us full drafts. Uh, and of its accessibility, at least insofar as the court's opinions allow. Uh, this is not a typical law review, after all, whose prolix submissions use more space for footnotes than, uh, uh, than for article text. Uh, and indeed, this is a book of articles intended for everyone from lawyers and judges to educated laymen and interested citizens. Uh, we have to thank everyone from uh, David Lampo and the design team, Linda Asu and the conference team, the interns and associates uh, who will be flitting about throughout the day and sitting in the audience, John Blanks, uh, who makes uh, everything run at the Center for Constitutional Studies, the media team, I should alert you, live t uh, tweeters, that the, the, there's an official hashtag for this event, see Josh Blackman out there, you'll want to note it's... it's it's, uh, you can get that from the media uh, team, but the <laughs> hashtag uh, is uh, pound Cato CD 2013. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter for that matter. If you see me on my device, I will be live tweeting uh, the event, kind of a meta feel to it. I'm uh, at iShapiro. I reiterate our hope that this collection of essays will secure and advance the Madisonian first principles of our Constitution, giving renewed voice to the framers fervent wish that we have a government of laws and not men. In so doing, we hope also to do justice to a rich uh, legal tradition in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens alike understand that the Constitution reflects and protects the natural rights of life, liberty, and property, and serves as a bulwark against the abuse of government power. In these heady times when the people are beginning to demand an, ed, an end to unconstitutional government actions and expansions of various kind, uh, it's more important than ever to remember our proud roots in the Enlightenment tradition. Now, we begin this conference with the big decisions from the last week of June. I refer, of course, to the cases involving racial preferences, voting rights, and same-sex marriage. The casual observer must have been quite confused that last week. First, the court punted on affirmative action, making it harder to use race in admissions without prohibiting the practice altogether. It then struck down a key part of the Voting Rights Act, 
and the very next day gutted the Defense of Marriage Act. What's going on? Is the court liberal or conservative? Is Chief Justice Roberts playing the long game, or are we living in Justice Kennedy's world? None of the above. The theme of these cases was captured by President Obama's reaction to the same-sex marriage ruling. We are all equal under the law. If we're all equal, then we shouldn't be judged by skin color or sexual orientation, and the machinery of democracy shouldn't be gummed up by outdated racial classifications. You can see more on these themes in Rogers Forward. In other words, the Supreme Court is increasingly embracing the Constitution's structural and rights-based protections for individual freedom and self-governance. Not in every case, and not without fits and starts, but on the whole, the justices are moving in a libertarian direction. It's therefore no coincidence that Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies is the only organization to have filed briefs supporting the winning side in each of the big three cases. Uh, or that we went 15 and three on the year. Even beyond racial preferences and gay rights, this court is coming to be defined by what Justice Kennedy has called equal liberty. With the terms big three cases, the real surprise should be that most people find themselves on opposite sides of the affirmative action or voting rights and gay marriage debates. The Constitution is quite clear in its protection of due process and equal protection, uh, which means that the government has to treat people fairly and equally. There is thus no justification for a public university to vary admission standards based on race. Similarly, while it would be best for the government to get out of the marriage business altogether, if there is to be civil marriage, at the very least, the federal government should recognize the lawful marriages that states do. This term, the Supreme Court vindicated these ideas. We may thus be living the court's libertarian moment. Here to elaborate on, and perhaps disagree with, this theme are three people very close to these civil rights battles. Their full bios are in your packet, so I'll just provide a brief intro. First, we have University of San Diego law professor Gail Harriet, also a member of the US Commission on Civil Rights, who wrote about Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin, the affirmative action case that ended in a bit of a fizzle. We may never know why it took the Supreme Court eight and a half months to come up with a 13-page near-unanimous ruling, but Harriet puts the case into its proper historical place. Gail has forgotten more about affirmative action than most of us will ever know, so it's a pleasure to have her discuss this topic. Next, as Roger mentioned, uh, in standing in for Will Consovoy, who litigated both the Fisher case uh, and Shelby County, the voting rights case, will be Roger Clegg. Roger is president and general counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity. He focuses on legal issues arising from civil rights laws, including the regulatory impact on business and the problems in higher education created by affirmative action. And he's also written for uh, the Cato Supreme Court Review on these subjects in the past. He's a former deputy assistant attorney general in the Reagan and Bush administrations, held the second highest positions in both the Civil Rights Division and the Environment and Natural Resources Division, and has held several other positions at the Justice Department, uh, including at the Solicitor General's office. Uh, Roger is a graduate of Yale Law School, but we'll forgive him for that uh, today. Finally, Elizabeth Wydra, uh, Chief Counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center, will discuss the marriage cases mostly United States versus Windsor, the DOMA case, because Hollingsworth uh, versus Perry, the Prop 8 case, turned out to be about civil procedure. Uh, now, Cato and uh, CAC don't often agree, but when we do, as we did here, we produce the most interesting brief in the world. See page 94 of your volumes. <laughs> Indeed, the last time we agreed was on the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause regarding guns. 
and this time, of course, was on the Equal Protection Clause with respect to sex. So clearly, in four or five years, look for a joint brief uh, involving the Due Process Clause and drugs. <laughs> with that, I'll turn it over to Gail. I can't help but laugh. I think Ilya might have, uh, have uh, put just the right word for it. I just took the red eye to fly across the country to speak to you all about a case that was a fizzle. <laughs> um, Fisher versus University of Texas is the affirmative action case that could have been a blockbuster, uh, but it wasn't, not yet anyway. It may get another trip to the Supreme Court uh, before all this is over, and it may turn into a real blockbuster at some point, but even if it doesn't, it is a modest win uh, for those who advocate race neutrality, and full disclosure, I am one of those persons who advocates race neutrality. Um, the Fisher case clarified the standard that applies to race preferential admissions policies in a way that ratchets up the pressure on universities to justify um, their admissions discrimination against whites and Asian applicants and remanded the case back to the Fifth Circuit to apply that standard. Uh, so the Fifth Circuit is, is, is the court that's gonna have to do all the work on this. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens there, but I am mildly optimistic. It's a very short opinion, uh, only 13 pages long, uh, which is curious. Justice Kennedy and his clerks could have written an opinion 10 times that long uh, in the seven months they had to work on it. There is probably a backstory here. Negotiations, rewrites, more negotiations, more rewrites, but alas, we may never know that story. Another interesting fact about Fisher is that it was a 7-1 decision with only Justice Ginsburg in dissent. Uh, that makes it the closest to unanimous the court has ever been on a race preferential admissions case. Breyer and Sotomayor were with the conservatives, all joined Kennedy's opinion. Uh, Elena Kagan recused herself. Um, this was the first decision in a decade on the topic of race preferential admissions. So the obvious question is, why such a long time? Well, for advocates of race neutrality, the court's 2003 decision, Grutter versus Bollinger, um, was like Alexander's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Lawsuits of this kind are very expensive to mount and you need to make sure you got a good chance of winning. So it was important that the next case that, that, that get that got to the court be one that there was some confidence that it was winnable. Um, so it took a while, it took a while. Um, let me tell you about the Grutter case first, which concerned the University of Michigan Law School since it's impossible to understand Fisher unless you first understand Grutter. In Grutter versus Bollinger, Sandra Day O'Connor was faced with what one court of appeals judge had called preferential treatment of a quote, staggering magnitude. O'Connor's five-member majority agreed that this was race discrimination. They could hardly deny it. Um, and they agreed that as a matter of constitutional doctrine, it must be subjected to strict scrutiny. 
ordinarily, as anybody who's, who's taken a course in constitutional law knows, um, that means that the discriminators must show, number one, uh, that there was some compelling purpose requiring them to discriminate, and two, that the way in which they were discriminating is narrowly tailored to achieve that purpose. Fine, I'm with them so far. Um, the Grutter Court went on to say, however, that the court should defer uh, to the judgment of the University of Michigan on matters of, of, of education. Essentially, it said that if the University of Michigan law school says it needs to discriminate um, in order to confer the educational benefits of diversity upon students, then the court shouldn't argue with that. It should defer. But deference is the opposite of strict scrutiny. It is impossible to strictly scrutinize all laws that racially discriminate and then turn around and defer to the judgment of the discriminator. The University of Michigan's airy claims that, the diver that diversity improves learning uh, were no better supported than the claims of the Topeka Board of Education uh, were back in the 1950s, that segregated schools are better for learning. If the court in Brown had deferred to the judgment um, of the Board of Education, then the world will be a very, very different world from the one we're living in now. Uh, not surprisingly, the Grutter decision drew this, the dissent of four justices, but four justices aren't enough. Um, what is curious is that during the same period um, in the early 2000s, research was starting to receive attention showing just how destructive race-based admissions are. For all the good intentions originally behind them, they just don't work. If the mounting empirical evidence is correct, it, and it's now increasingly difficult to deny it, um, we now have fewer African-American scientists, fewer doctors, dentists, or engineers than we would have had using race-neutral admissions policies. We probably have fewer lawyers, too, and fewer college professors. Um, it should surprise no one that it's not a good idea to attend a school where you need a preference to get into it. We're not doing students, whether they are athletes, legacies, or racial minorities, any favors by admitting them to a school at which they will almost certainly be at the bottom of the class. Most would have been more successful if they had attended a school that better fit their academic credentials. And there is plenty of empirical evidence to prove it, especially in the area of science and engineering. Universities are nevertheless ignoring this evidence. It doesn't fit the narrative. Their narrative is that affirmative action supporters are the good guys. Uh, they're the ones who care, and people who disagree with them are the bad guys. The University of Texas became the first post-Gruder defendant for a good reason. Texas's story special. Back in the 1990s, before the Gruder case, constitutional experts thought the days of race preferential admissions policies were numbered. Uh, some lawsuits were, had already been filed, including the one against the University of Texas. The Supreme Court had never really approved this kind of discrimination. The only case uh, that ha had been the famously fractured 1978 case of UC Regents versus Bakke, in which four justices had essentially said, sure, go ahead, do whatever you want. Uh, four justices had said, this is clearly illegal, and one one single justice, Lewis Powell, has straddled the fence. According to Powell, the purpose for such discrimination could not be 
to increase the number of minority graduates. That was, that was not permitted by the Constitution, he thought. It could not be to compensate minority students for past societal discrimination. It had to be to make education better for all students by exposing them to diversity. Curiously, he used Harvard University as his example, because he, he he, he'd gone there as a gra graduate student, um, of what was permissible. They had a program under which they tried to get a diversity, people from different states. He didn't even realize that had been brought up simply to, to minimize the number of Jewish students that went to Harvard. Um, didn't know. He didn't know the history of it. Um, in the years after Bakke, the Supreme Court had issued several opinions requiring race neutrality in other contexts. So the Fifth Circuit thought, well, uh, they'll probably not follow Powell's opinion in Bakke and ordered the UT uh, to stop discriminating. The Texas legislature then stepped in um, and responded with a statutory plan that required Texas to admit students who graduated in the top 10% of their high school class in Texas. Um, that results in a pretty racially diverse group. Um, so UT at least publicly claimed during this period um, that the top 10% plan gave them uh, an equally diverse student body. In 1996, 18.6% of UT's freshman class had been either African American or Hispanic. By 2004, mostly through the use of the top 10 method, the freshman class was 21.4% African American or Hispanic, so it had actually gone up. Yet as soon as the Grutter case was decided, UT announced plans to add racial preferences on top of the 10% plan, because they couldn't get rid of the 10% plan. It was statutory. Um, so that got them up to 25.5% African American or Hispanic. And this is getting pretty far from Bakke and Gruder's notion of critical mass. 25.5% um, is looking pretty high, looking a lot more like an effort to move towards having UT's class reflect the demographics um, of Texas. And that's why Texas was such a tempting target. Um, they really were in uh, a position where arguments could be made against them that couldn't be made. Um, in, in other cases. If the Supreme Court had simply ruled in Fisher, we are not sure what we meant by critical mass in the Grutter case, but we're pretty sure that 25.5% is, is well beyond that. You know, they could have decided the case that way. That would have been a straight win for Ms. Fisher, um, but it really wouldn't have had that much in the way of precedential value. Few states have high enough minority uh, population to, for such a ceiling to matter to them. So for whatever reason, the court didn't go that route. Um, acknowledging that Grutter had been deferential to colleges and universities, instead the court and Fisher clarified that colleges and universities still have to provide quote, a reasoned and principled explanation for its diversity goal, and tough-minded strict scrutiny uh, will apply without any deference to the question of narrow tailoring. Now, recall that the traditional strict scrutiny test has two parts to it. First, race discriminators must demonstrate compelling purpose. Not a really good purpose, but a compelling purpose. On this half of the formula, the Fisher court um, said the governmental body, um, well, they, what they did is they essentially brushed over the, the deference point. Um, so they didn't change the law there. On the second half of the test, 
um, they say state um, that the discriminating governmental body must show its actual policy is narrowly tailored to achieve that compelling purpose. And here they clarified that they were going to be tough. They were going to use strict scrutiny. I am not convinced that this bifurcated approach, deference on half the test, no deference on the other half of the test, is going to work in practice. Um, it's unstable. It will depend on how the implementing court um, decides to conceptualize the, com the compelling purpose. You can view it broadly, view it narrowly, um, and it's really the two parts of the test are, 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 are a seamless web. Um, you can't just have one rule applying to one and to the other, but it's the law until further notice. Uh, that's the best we can do. Um, what will it mean to say the court will strictly scrutinize whether an admissions policy is narrowly tailored to serve the interest um, of capturing educational advantages of diversity? It's hard to say. Not much I can say here. Uh, but I do believe that, among other things, universities are going to be expected to tailor their programs to take account of the educational disadvantages of racial preferences, not just the advantages. Among those disadvantages is that mounting evidence that preferential treatment hurts the chances of preference beneficiaries to succeed, most notably in the area of science and engineering. Um, I don't think that's a stretch for the court. In Bakke, Powell insisted that a college or university that claims to be interested in diversity has to show a concern for other kinds of diversity, too. It can't just be racial diversity. They have to convince the court that they're really sincere about this notion of diversity helps education. Uh, Bakke ended up winning his case as a result. Um, similarly, the University of Texas claims to be concerned about conferring the benefits of diversity upon students. Well, if they're concerned about the educational benefits of diversity, they need to be concerned about the educational disadvantages of diversity as well. And they have to have a program that at least tries to reconcile um, the, the various research now, particularly in the area of science and engineering. If the Fifth Circuit actually does that, if it takes the Fisher standard and actually requires the University of Texas to show that it is taking into consideration the research on, 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 on mismatch, then this case really will be a blockbuster. Um, but don't get too excited yet. I think that's the best introduction I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, thank you very much for, for inviting me here today. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the uh, Voting Rights Act decision, uh, Shelby County versus Holder. And um, my remarks will be divided into, into three parts. I'm going to talk about the decision. Like itself. Gaul. Like Gaul. Uh, I'm going to talk about the, uh, uh, the decision itself. And then um, talk a little bit about one constitutional problem with Section 5, since it is Constitution Day, after all, uh, that the court really did not talk about very much, but which will, is, remains important. And then finally, talk uh, a little bit about what the congressional reaction is likely to be. Uh, congressional reaction should be nothing, uh, because it was a good decision, and the Voting Rights Act is, is just fine. 
the way it is, but uh, I, I think that there is going to be uh, uh, some rumbling, at least, there already has been some rumbling in Congress, and so it, it behooves us to talk a little bit about what's likely to happen there. Okay, uh, the course decision had to do with Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. <coughs> and so I should tell you a little bit about what Section 5 is. Uh, Section 5 is just one part of the Voting Rights Act, but it is an important part. And it's the part of the Voting Rights Act that requires some state and local jurisdictions, not all, but some, uh, as determined by a formula in Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, to submit beforehand to the federal government any change in any voting practice or procedure, no matter how big or how small. So anything from as big a change as statewide reapportionment to something as minor as deciding to move the poll booths uh, from the high school to the junior high school next door, uh, all of those things have to be okayed by Washington first. Now, when you think about this, uh, and, and also uh, when, the, uh, when it's submitted to the federal government, the federal government looks to see whether there is anything discriminatory, racially discriminatory, in purpose or in effect in those changes. So, when you think about it, there are three possible constitutional problems with this. First of all, you're treating different state and local jurisdictions differently. And the court has made clear that that's something that our federalism structure in the Constitution looks askance at. Uh, secondly, it is intrusive in that it requires the federal government to pre-clear actions that typically would be left to the hands of, of state and local governments. And then finally, it potentially strikes down changes that are not discriminatory in purpose but simply have a disproportionate racial effect, even though the court has said that the 14th and 15th Amendments make illegal only state actions that result in, that, that, that actually treat people differently on the basis of race, not simply uh, state actions that have a disproportionate effect. So all of these are constitutionally pro problematic. The Supreme Court in the Shelby County decision struck down the coverage formula in Section 4 that Section 5 incorporates by, by reference in deciding who gets pre-cleared. It was a 5-4 to four decision, which uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, um, and it focused just on the fact that the coverage formula no longer makes any sense. Uh, the coverage formula uh, uses election data from the 1964, 1968, and 1972 elections uh, to determine which states and which local jurisdictions have to get preclearance from 
the federal government. And Chief Justice Roberts said, essentially, that that is simply uh, unrealistic and irrational. Uh, the, the court has repeatedly reauthorized this um, uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act as recently as 2006, and there's no reason why it could not have used more recent election data. And there is a lot of information in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion uh, about how the circumstances that obtained in the 1960s are not the circumstances that obtain now. Chief Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent, um, a very long dissent. Um, but she, as, as the, um, I, I commend to your all's reading the, uh, the law review, the, um, Cato Law Review discussion uh, of the case by Will Consovoy and, and, and Tom McCarthy, uh, who discusses why, Chief or why Justice Ginsburg's uh, discussion is really not on point. She's really addressing, she's really dissenting from an opinion that Chief Justice Roberts did not, did not write. Um, finally, there was a, uh, an opinion, um, separate concurrence by Justice Thomas saying that he would go ahead and say that uh, Section 5 itself, with its intrusive uh, preclearance requirement, uh, is also uh, unconstitutional. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts didn't say that it was not unconstitutional. He just didn't uh, address that issue. Uh, Justice Thomas said that he would go ahead and do that. On these issues, Justice Thomas um, reminds me of my favorite Reagan-era bumper sticker, uh, which said, Weinberger for president, let's get it over with. Um, <laughs> he, Chief, Justice Thomas is, is perfectly happy to go ahead and, and grasp the nettle in these cases and, and, and determine whether, in fact, the, uh, uh, the underlying legislation is, in fact, constitutional or not. Okay, well, I mentioned that the court's opinion really did not uh, deal very much with another way in which Section 5 is, I think, unconstitutional. And that is the fact that it uses an effects test uh, in addition to a uh, racially discriminatory purpose test. Uh, this is a disparate impact statute. I hate disparate impact statutes. Uh, I think that a majority of the court doesn't really like them either. Uh, the problem with disparate impact, the disparate impact approach, is that it, it does two bad things. It bans legitimate practices that happen to have a disproportionate racial effect. Uh, in the voting context, that means that, for instance, various anti-fraud measures can be objected to uh, on the grounds that allegedly they disproportionately affect one racial group as opposed to another racial group. That's a bad thing. The other bad thing about Disparate, the disparate impact approach is that it actually encourages people to make decisions on a race-based basis. Um, and indeed, we have seen that with respect to the uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. The principal use to which the uh, Section 5 has been put is uh, as a tool to coerce state and local jurisdictions into racial gerrymandering and racial segregation of voting districts. And uh, the, the amicus brief that uh, 
that my organization filed in, in the case pointed out that 39 of the 67 objections that the Justice Department has filed in this area since 2000 uh, had to do with this kind of, of uh, reapportionment issue. There are all kinds of ugly side effects with this uh, racial uh, segregation in, in voting districts. Um, and I'm not going to go through all of them now, but I mean, you can just imagine, you know, you are, you're discouraging interracial coalition building. Uh, you uh, polarize the, the electorate, both in, in racial and in ideological terms. Uh, in short, you make racial relations worse, which is a funny thing, and, and you increase segregation, which is a, an odd thing for a, a civil rights statute to, to do. Well, I mentioned that there's going to be uh, the, you know, the possibility of an act two here. Um, that is, what is Congress going to do in, in response to this? Uh, I think that it's, um, waiting for, see which card I got. I hope it's not the zero minute card. No, it's not, keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, the, um, uh, it, 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 it was predictable that Congress would act. The, the left is very good at responding to Supreme Court decisions that it, that it does not like. Um, and when you think about it, the, the obvious thing for the, uh, for Congress to do in this case is to update the coverage formula. That's all the Supreme Court struck down after all. So uh, the Supreme Court didn't like the fact that a coverage formula was based on, on data that was decades old, then Congress could just uh, uh, pass a new statute that uses the, the updated uh, formula. I don't think that's going to happen though. Um, I don't think that there are very many jurisdictions that are or would admit to be uh, in the same boat as 1965 Mississippi. Uh, I don't think that congressmen are going to uh, happily volunteer their districts for uh, that kind of treatment to say that you know, we are so racist here in, in, in my district that the only th way that we can be trusted to run our elections is to get, uh, is to have Eric Holder telling us what's okay and, and what isn't. And not only that, but if there were to be wide-scale uh, changes in the uh, redistricting process, a lot of districts that are not currently covered under uh, the preclearance provisions now would be, and that would mean that a lot of incumbents would have their, uh, uh, their, their districts uh, reconfigured. Uh, and that reminds me of the scene in, in Blazing Saddles when Governor Lepetamane says, gentlemen, our pony baloney jobs are at stake. This is serious. Um, that's not going to happen either. I think that what's more likely to happen is that uh, there will be some attempt for a liberal wish list to be uh, proposed as legislation that supposedly uh, addresses this terrible thing that the Supreme Court has done in Shelby County versus Holder. I don't think that that will pass either. Um, you know, the liberal wish list will uh, do things like limit voter ID, um, limit other anti-fraud provisions. This is not something that most Republicans are going to be happy with, and a lot of Democrats are not going to be happy with, with that kind of legislation either. What Congress should do is nothing. Um, most of the voting act is, is, well, that's right. <laughs> Congress shall pass no law. I mean, everything else is dicta. Um, Certainly shouldn't pass anything else in the, uh, in, in, in the voting area. There are already uh, plenty of statutes that 
the Justice Department and other litigants can use uh, if there actually is uh, purposeful racial discrimination out there. Uh, and the only difference is that, between that and Section 5, is that now uh, the Justice Department actually has to prove its case, which is the way any other civil rights statute works as well. So uh, I hope Congress will do nothing and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have a, a good Supreme Court decision to, to build on in, in, in future cases where Congress oversteps its bounds. Thanks very much. Elizabeth saying, well, I disagreed with all of that, but now I have to talk about something I agree with Ilya on. I know, right? Well, you know, hoping Congress will do nothing is probably, you know, a good way to get what you want on Constitution Day. Um, I, however, did not drop my liberal wish list in time, so the Constitution Eagle didn't bring me what I wanted on Constitution Day morning, but that's all right. Um, it's great to be here with you uh, today on Constitution Day. Uh, for those of us at my organization, Constitutional Accountability Center, and of course, um, our friends at Cato, every day is Constitution Day, but um, it's, it's wonderful to celebrate. Um, it was also a great honor to file a brief in the marriage equality cases on behalf of CAC and Cato. Um, I always cherish those opportunities to present to the court and to the public a unified vision of equality and liberty under the Constitution, one that transcends typical ideological boundaries of conservative, libertarian, and progressive. Um, but as Ilya uh, alluded to, it doesn't happen all that often. Um, and uh, I don't, I think, you know, as we saw in Shelby County versus Fisher, um, which my friends on the panel today spoke about earlier, you know, unfortunately, both Cato and the court majority got the Constitution wrong. Um, but I'll comment briefly on that toward the end of my remarks and instead focus on a case in which the court vindicated the Constitution's guarantee of equality. Ten years to the day after the court recognized a constitutional right of privacy in the intimate relations of gay men and lesbians in Lawrence versus Texas, in U.S. versus Windsor, the majority struck down Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, which excluded legally married same-sex couples from more than 1,000 federal benefits. It was struck down as a violation of the Fifth Amendment. Now, the majority opinion in the DOMA case, uh, which was authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy and joined by uh, Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, certainly minced no words when it struck down the statute. DOMA, the opinion explained, writes inequality into the entire U.S. code. The principal effect of the statute, the majority said, is to identify a subset of state-sanctioned marriages and make them unequal. DOMA undermines both the public and private significance of state-sanctioned same-sex marriages, for it tells those couples and all the world that their otherwise valid marriages are unworthy of federal recognition. According to the Windsor majority, DOMA's intent to interfere with the equal dignity of same-sex marriages was, quote, its essence. Because the Constitution's guarantee of equality means at the very least that a bare uh, desire to harm a politically unpopular group cannot justify disparate treatment of that group, the statute was struck down as violating basic due process and equal protection principles applicable to the federal government. 
Now, as Ilya mentioned, that same day, the court also issued a ruling in Hollingsworth versus Perry, um, the case in which proponents of Proposition 8, which redefined California's constitution to define marriage as only between a man and a woman, um, uh, that case was dismissed, as uh, Ilya mentioned, on sort of a civil procedure ground. The court, neither the majority nor the dissent, weighed in on the ultimate question of whether the Constitution protects same-sex marriages under the Constitution. So I will be focusing my remarks on the Windsor opinion and um, in honor of, the, of Constitution Day on one basic question. Did the Windsor majority get the Constitution's text and history right? And I unsurprisingly think that the court did. The Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, uh, which was the operative constitutional provision because DOMA is a federal enactment, and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which was passed in the wake of the Civil War and was intended to protect against state and local government infringement of liberty and equality. Um, these provisions guarantee to all persons the equal protection of the laws. Well, of course, the text of the Fifth Amendment is not as explicit a guarantee as we find in the Equal Protection Clause. The Windsor majority um, expressly braided together these two constitutional provisions and said that while the Fifth Amendment itself withdraws from government the power to degrade or demean in the way DOMA does, the Equal Protection Guarantee of the 14th Amendment makes the Fifth Amendment right all the more specific and all the better understood and preserved. So I thought that was sort of an interesting twist that the court did that brought in the powerful text and history of the 14th Amendment. And since it is Constitution Day, I feel like I'm in safe company to confess that I am a major fan of the beautiful, majestic language of the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, um, particularly the Equal Protection Clause, although I'm also a major fan unlike some of the justices on the Supreme Court, of the wonderful Privileges or Immunities Clause. Um, so, you know, shout out to PRI today. Um, but anyway, back to the Equal Protection Clause. We should have a group photo with Justice Thomas. I know, right, yeah. The fans of the PRI Clause were few, but vocal. Um, the text of the Equal Protection Clause is sweeping and universal. Quote, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And while the amendment was written and ratified um, in the wake of the Civil War, it was not just written to protect against racial discrimination. There were um, uh, proposals made while the Congress, Reconstruction Congress was considering what language to put into the 14th Amendment that would have limited it just to remedying racial discrimination and preventing against, protecting against racial discrimination. But instead, the framers of the 14th Amendment chose much broader, more universal language. Um, it protects all persons. It secures the same rights and same protection under the law for all women, all men of any race or class, whether young or old, citizen or alien, gay or straight. No person under the 14th Amendment's text may be consigned to the status of a pariah, quote, a stranger to the laws. The 14th Amendment's sweeping guarantee of equal legal protection means first and foremost equal protection under the law and equality of rights for all persons. Under the plain text then of the Constitution, this protection plainly applies to gay men and lesbians, which the Windsor majority assumed. 
But so the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection and the Fifth Amendment's uh, guarantee of that principle um, and liberty as well apply to gay men and lesbians. But what exactly does it mean? Well, from the 14th Amendment's framers' own explanations of equal protection during congressional debates, press coverage of the proposal um, and ratification process, and the Supreme Court's earliest decisions interpreting the Equal Protection Clause, um, we can see that the original public meaning of this language is to secure to all persons the protection of equal laws. It makes sense. Um, and this was understood to prohibit arbitrary and invidious discrimination and to secure equal rights for all classes and groups of persons. It meant simply the destruction of all caste-based legislation, which would subject one group of people to a legal code not applicable to another group. Now, the Windsor majority, I believe, is in line with this constitutional text and history. Echoing Justice Kennedy's opinion in Romer, which invalidated a status-based enactment that denied equal rights to gay men and lesbians, not to further a proper legislative end, but to make this group unequal to everyone else, the Windsor majority struck down DOMA Section 3 because, quote, the avowed purpose and practical effect of the law here in question are to impose a disadvantage, a separate status, and so a stigma upon legally married same-sex couples. Noting that DOMA placed same-sex couples in an unstable position of being in a second-tier marriage, the majority concluded that this differentiation demeans the couple whose moral and sexual choices the Constitution protects, citing Lawrence, and whose relationship the state has sought to dignify and, quote, humiliates tens of thousands of children now being raised by same-sex couples, end quote. And so the court, um, majority at least, you can read, um, I go through the dissents in the article I wrote for the review to see um, what exactly this language might mean for advocates um, or opponents of legalizing same-sex marriage in the states. Um, but it certainly, I think, has been encouraging to advocates of um, marriage equality in the states, even though the majority expressly denied um, or, I suppose, um, uh, put a disclaimer in saying that the decision did not actually reach that issue. But where the, where the court majority got the Constitution's text and history right in the marriage equality cases, I would just like to say briefly um, why I think it didn't get it right in the Shelby County Voting Rights Act case. In that majority opinion gutting a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, the conservatives, I submit, in fact shied away from the Constitution's text and history, particularly the text and history of the 15th Amendment, which makes clear that Congress has broad authority to enact laws that prevent against racial discrimination in voting. Perhaps exemplifying most its disregard for the Constitution's text and history, the majority in Shelby County never expressly identified the provision of the Constitution that uh, rendered this uh, coverage formula under the preclearance provision unconstitutional. He says, Chief Justice Roberts says in his ruling that the Voting Rights Act provision violates, quote, the letter and spirit of the Constitution, end quote. But I think his opinion really is all spirit. The majority opinion emphasized that the Voting Rights Act um, diminished the sovereignty of the states, but ignores the fact that the 15th Amendment was uh, designed to give Congress the authority to do just that. 
in order to prevent racial discrimination in voting. It fell to Justice Ginsburg, perhaps now battling her friend Justice Scalia for the mantle of the true originalist, to get the Constitution's text and history right. In a spirited dissent on behalf of the court's progressive wing, Justice Ginsburg illustrated how the majority's ruling could not be squared with the 15th Amendment. Um, and I think that it's, uh, you know, she gets into both the record that supports the Voting Rights Act um, coverage formula, as well as the text and history. Um, and I uh, just got my card saying I have five minutes, so um, I would just uh, defer to her um, and uh, not rehearse those arguments again here. Um, because I want to also make sure that I have the time to say that I think um, I would say the court got the text and history wrong uh, in Fisher in the affirmative action case, but of course uh, the court punted in that case. So I would just disagree um, uh, with uh, Professor Harriet that uh, affirmative action policies are always unconstitutional um, under the text and history of the of, of the 14th Amendment. And, you know, I think that it's important to talk about this because for the last couple decades or so, and I think even more so in the Roberts Court era, the fight over the constitutionality of race-conscious measures to foster equality in education, particularly, has been reduced to a sound bite. Um, and that is whether or not the Constitution, um, specifically the 14th Amendment, but that's not a very good sound bite, um, is colorblind. And here, conservatives have sort of claimed the mantle of Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson to argue that the 14th Amendment prohibits virtually all race-conscious measures. Um, and my friends on the left often missing the opportunity to use the Constitution's text and history to defend the constitutionality of these measures. And so, you know, I certainly agree that the Constitution is colorblind to a certain extent. In writing the broadest textual guarantee of equality in our Constitution, which you know, I've just spent uh, 10 minutes or so talking about, the framers of the 14th Amendment very deliberately rejected limitations on the scope of the Equal Protection Clause, sweeping men and women of all races, again, the language says all persons, gay men, lesbians, uh, young or old, men and women of all races. So yes, um, you know, in that sense, the Constitution's language in the 14th Amendment was intended to be colorblind, but it was not intended to be blind to reality. And the framers of the 14th Amendment themselves, both in writing the text of the amendment and in enacting race-conscious measures to foster equality themselves, recognized and resounded the notion that the government could not take race into account in order to ensure equality of opportunity for all persons regardless of race. So I think that you know, it's important um, to debate whether these race-conscious measures are productive or necessary. And I think Professor Harriet made some um, very um, uh, compelling points um, for her side about that. But I think that that's a different debate from whether or not race-conscious measures are always prohibited by the Constitution. And I think that that is, frankly, just wrong. But if you're looking for the Supreme Court to answer that question in this upcoming term, in the case uh, that you know, everyone's calling the affirmative action case, and certainly by its title, you would think that's what it's about, the Schwett versus Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action, which is about a Michigan um, voter initiative that prohibited the university, public universities in those states from 
using uh, race-conscious measures. Um, don't look for the court to decide it in that case, because while that case walks and, you know, it certainly looks like an affirmative action case, that's not really what the case is about. Um, instead, the equal protection issue in that case is whether the passage of Michigan's proposal violated a rarely used uh, political restructuring doctrine. Um, in, this, in this case, that means whether moving a decision-making authority over race-conscious measures from the regents and other university admissions officials um, to the voters in that state somehow violated the Equal Protection Clause by changing the standard political process. So uh, while it might uh, walk and talk like an affirmative action case, it's not really about affirmative action. Um, but we can, I'm sure, continue to debate these issues, and I'm sure we will in the rest of our comments. So thank you for having me today, and thank you, Ilya. Thank you for that. Um, I'll, I'll note further that uh, if the uh, court managed to somehow come up with a fizzle in Fisher, then in Schuette, uh which, you know, was the Sixth Circuit ended up voting 8-7 in that direction. I think that it won't cause them even eight and a half months of effort to come up with a, a very narrow decision just saying, you know, uh, what were you doing, uh, lower court, uh, actually apply the law that, that we've given you. Um, I want to give Roger uh, the first response on the, uh, the voting rights comments that Elizabeth made. Okay. Um, I was going to respond to... Uh Fisher as well, but um, what I have to say on both is, is, is pretty short. Um, certainly Congress um, ought to be given a lot of deference uh, in, in its fact-finding and so forth when it passes legislation under the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, however, um, the text of the 15th Amendment says that the legislation has to be appropriate. Uh, this is the same language that's used in a lot of other constitutional amendments. Uh, so some degree of judicial review, I think, is appropriate. There is nothing in the text or the history of the 15th Amendment to suggest that uh, Congress's authority is unreviewable. And in this case, it did not even come close. Uh, there, 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 there was no uh, appropriate fact-finding. Um, this was not even close. And I think that there does have to be some review to make sure that the legislation is appropriate, particularly when the legislation runs up against other constitutional principles, like federalism. And in the case of the effects uh, test, not only is the legislation that Congress passed beyond its authority under the 15th Amendment, but it actually encourages race-based decision-making in the voting context, which is at odds with the 14th and 15th Amendment. So I think that the, uh, uh, I don't think that Elizabeth really means that Congress has a, a blank check to pass whatever it wants in this area, and the court just has to nod meekly and say, well, they said the 15th Amendment, and we have to let it go. Uh, some review is appropriate, and I think if ever review were appropriate, it's appropriate in, in this case. In terms of originalism and um, uh, racial preferences, I'll just uh, uh, cite for you all uh, an excellent law review article that was, uh, that's been written by Michael Rappaport. Uh, also, I responded, I think it was to, the, um, to Elizabeth's uh, uh, group on, on SCOTUS blog with some of the problems with, uh, with their arguments in the, uh, in the Fisher case. Uh, I don't say that you can never 
pass uh, legislation that uh, is uh, that, that that is color conscious. Um, but I do think that the uh, the constitutional standards have to be symmetrical. Um, uh, you know, it has to be applied to which uh, the, the same whichever group is being. Um, discriminated uh, against. Um, there, again, there is nothing in the text or the history of the Constitution that suggests that you can, that the uh, standards are supposed to be asymmetrical. Um, even if you take the um, approach that the court has taken of, of, of strict scrutiny, if you honestly uh, towed up the costs to this kind of discrimination versus the, the, the purported benefits, uh, it is not a close question. Uh, the costs of this racial discrimination overwhelm any possible benefit, and you don't even have to get to the Constitution. Um, the, uh, what the court should have done in the Bakke case is read and honored uh, Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which is quite categorical in saying that if you get federal money, you can't uh, discriminate on the basis of race. That is clearly what institutions like the University of Texas are doing. Gail, do you want to have a word? Um, I guess I can ramble on for a second here, can I? Uh, <laughs> I can't resist. Um, first of all, I would have preferred to have been the one to mention Michael Rappaport's article since he is my colleague at the University of San Diego. Um, we'll give you joint credit. <laughs> <laughs> second, um, you know, I, I didn't use the word colorblindness in my talk because I, I, I think it's true that, that the 14th Amendment is nece not necessarily um, um, something where you can say never can race discrimination be approved um, under the 14th Amendment. I mean, the classic um, hypothetical is always the, the race riot in the prison yard where the, 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 the guards have to quickly separate the people who are fighting and they have to use race as a proxy for who's on what side because it's a race riot and they want to make sure that people aren't going to tear each other apart. Um, my view is that a certain amount of judicial intervention was needed uh, to implement the, 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 the 14th Amendment. They needed to, pro to, to create a certain judicial framework, but it had to be a truly judicial framework in the sense that you have to come up with some rule. And the rule they came up with was, number one, you need to have a compelling purpose, really compelling, not sort of a, you know, a happy little purpose that, you know, that lots of people like, but something that's truly compelling. That's the kind of purpose that you get societal consensus on. And if you go out on the street and you ask people, hey, do you think it's a good idea during a race riot in a prison for the guards to be able to separate the, 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 um, the prisoners by race temporarily while they get things under control. And nobody that isn't crazy is going to say, yeah, that sounds okay to me. Uh, that's the sort of thing I think that, that, that surely the 14th Amendment can make, make room for. Uh, on the other hand, racial preferences and admissions have been a disaster. Most people are against them. You can't say there's any kind of societal consensus in, in, in their favor. Uh, and they've actually made minority students worse off. Uh, I can't say it enough times. We would have more black doctors, more black scientists, more black engineers, probably more black lawyers, probably more black college professors if we'd engaged in race-neutral um, admissions. Um, when are we going to stop getting so naive? Every generation thinks it comes up with like a swell new idea of where it's okay to use race, uh, and every time we regret it. Uh, so I hope we don't remain so gullible in the future. Let's open it up to questions at this point. Uh, and I will remind you of our three rules. Wait for the microphone. Uh, identify yourself, 
and please actually ask a question without giving a speech. So who's first? Right there. No, over here, over here. Over here. Hey, uh, Ilya Soman, George Mason Law School. I guess this is a question uh, for Gail and Elizabeth about the uh, affirmative action case, namely sort of the relevance of the sort of mismatch data that was discussed in Gail's presentation in that I think that data would be very relevant if the claimed benefit or the claimed compelling state interest was that it's providing educational benefits to minority students. But ironically, the point of the diversity rationale is that the real beneficiaries are not the minority students, but rather all the other students who are exposed to the, the, the benefits of being in a diverse classroom with members of certain minority groups. So it may be true that sort of the overall societal costs of these policies outweigh those diversity benefits, and it may also be true, or at least I believe, and I think you believe also, or, or that is Gail also believes, maybe not Elizabeth, that diversity is not a compelling state interest. But if diversity is a compelling state interest, then it seems like the only relevant question is whether the policies are narrowly tailored to achieving that goal. Uh, and if in the process they create various costs, such as mismatch, fewer minority scientists and doctors and so forth, that may very well be unfortunate, but is may not be relevant to the whole framework that's been laid out in Grutter and uh, Bakke and other similar cases because ironically the rationale that the court accepted is not the one that might be stronger that this is compensating minorities for racial injustices but that it's actually benefiting students who are not minorities so I can benefit from being in class with black students even if the black students themselves are not doing very well in that class because they're providing a diverse perspective. Yeah, although you've overstated it a little bit in the sense that, that Powell's point was not um, that this is supposed to benefit the white students. Uh, Powell's point was that this is the only explanation that would benefit all students um, on the other hand, um, students are not public utilities. Um, the notion that, 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 um, that um, colleges and universities can set up a system um, that benefits um, the, 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 um, the typical student, uh, but nevertheless is a net loss, that contravenes everything that Powell was talking about. His whole point was you can only do this if it's benefiting everybody. Um, if it's not, then it, then it actually does undermine Powell's point entirely. And in fact, I think it would also undermine um, everyone's support. I mean, find me anybody in America who would say, yeah, you're right, we need to keep this going for the white students. Um, even though it's hurting the minority students, that's okay because the, the average white student is benefiting. That's a violation of equal protection there in itself. Elizabeth? Um, I, what was the question aspect of that? <laughs> Do you want me to repeat it or? <laughs> Not the whole thing. Uh, do you want to comment on? <laughs> well, look, I, you know, I think there, there certainly are uh, people who would defend these policies. They've done so in the, you know, in Fisher. Um, there, you know, that case did not suffer from a lack of briefing. Uh, many of those briefs were on the educational benefits. Um, you know, that's not uh, sort of my portfolio, but there certainly are people, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't say there are people who uh, defend the efficacy of those policies. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I'm not sure if you're talking about the old Michigan case or the one that's coming up this term. You know, I think that, that the sort of potential benefits 
to uh, students along racial lines is the only way in which the broader debate about affirmative action will get into that case if it gets in at all. Um, because I think the court will probably, uh, and probably very quickly, get to the much more simple, um, uh, at least superficially simple point about the political restructuring doctrine. I gave uh, Ilya Soman a little bit of dispensation with uh, the, under the, the Ilya clause. Under, yeah. under the <laughs> Ilya clause of the uh, moderator prerogative uh, rules, yes. Right there. And you can also tweet a question at me if you want, at I Shapiro. In, uh, this is, uh, my name is Jim Duhall, I'm unaffiliated. The question is, is addressed to Elizabeth. Under the DOMA case, the Supreme Court didn't hold that, as a, that, that nationally, in all the states, uh, uh, gay unions had to be recognized, but only that marital rights of gay couples had to be recognized in the states where uh, gay marriage was legalized. So it seems to me the gist of the case is that the Supreme Court is allowing the states to determine whether federal legislation is constitutional, which seems to, to turn the 14th Amendment on its head because under the 14th Amendment, it's Congress which is decide to decide whether state action is constitutional. And I, I wonder if you have a reaction to that. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, uh, so first, I think the, the, the sort of 10th Amendment kind of argument that was put forward um, about, uh, um, you know, federalism arguments weren't really addressed um, that uh, explicitly in the majority opinion. But I think that the, the majority felt that um, because the states traditionally define marriage, um, although the, the majority certainly did note many instances which the federal government validly did regulate uh, marriage for the purpose of federal benefits and federal law, um, that the federalism issues weren't really the most important um, in uh, deciding whether or not DOMA violated the Fifth Amendment's um, equality and liberty uh, protections. But I think your, your question hits on the, you know, obviously the very big question after Windsor, which is what does this mean for the states? And, you know, I said that I, I do think that um, there is encouraging language in the opinion for advocates of marriage equality, um, for a gay and lesbians to be allowed to marry in the states. But I think there's also, um, worryingly to me, but probably encouraging to others, um, for opponents of same-sex marriage in the states, I think there, there is also language to latch onto as well, just as Kennedy writes about how you know, this was um, New York's communities, the community of New York's decision to uh, legalize these marriages, and so DOMA is um, uh, making these, these state-sanctioned marriages second tier. So, you know, all you have to do is look at the dissents um, to see that there is great debate over what the majority opinion means for that big question. Justice Scalia says, obviously, it means that uh, state laws limiting marriage to between a man and a woman are unconstitutional. You know, Chief Justice Roberts and Alito are sort of like, oh, wait, no, this is about federalism, so that means states can do whatever they want. So I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, picking up on that, I think regardless of how you think about the uh, merits of uh, Windsor or, or state-based gay marriage, I think that uh, uh, Scalia definitely has uh, the right of the consequence of the Windsor opinion. If, 
if uh, on Kennedy called uh, you know DOMA Section Three demeaning uh, and uh, ascribed all sorts of negative motivations to it and, and had no rational reason for it. Uh, I think it's very easy to replace DOMA Section 3 with you know, some state's marriage law, and, and away you go. Roberts is trying to do damage control, of course, as it is want to be a minimalist, uh, but I think it's hard to see how, um, you know, were they forced to reach the merits? Were uh, Kennedy's view of standing in Perry to have carried the day, as I think it should have, it would be hard to see how uh, a state law, served, you know, the, the same court that decided with such majestic language, the Windsor case, that they would turn around uh, and say, oh, but states can uh, do that uh, uh, practice that we just denigrated. That's my view, at least. Uh, right there. My name is Stephen Shore. One issue that, as far as I know, was not addressed in the Windsor case is the future of civil unions. Is it simply a matter of time before they are struck down as unconstitutional? Um, you know, I, I think that's an open question. You know, the, the that was sort of the, um, the uh, I think back then it was the 10-state solution. Now it's probably more like 12. But, um, you know, that was proposed in the Perry case, which was that, you know, if we have states that um, allow civil unions, like California, basically giving the same exact rights um, and responsibilities to gay and lesbian couples who um, enter into civil unions, but withhold from those couples um, the uh, institution of marriage, is that not sort of even greater evidence of um, a simple desire to make the gay and lesbian couples unions um, second class, and that of course would be um, uh, prohibited by the Constitution. But um, the justices did not seem to like that argument at, um, uh, when oral arguments were presented. So I'm not sure if that's going to be the next wave of litigation. It seems from the lawsuits filed immediately after the Windsor decision that they're going sort of straight at attacking the laws that um, define marriages between a man and a woman. There are a couple of cases, I think, that also go after DOMA Section 2, which says that uh, a state doesn't have to recognize a neighboring state's um, same-sex union for uh, various purposes. So uh, we'll see where the courts take this in the future and, and, and whether public opinion uh, overtakes uh, the particular state, you know, mooting cases in, in one state or another. Back there. Uh, my name is Akhil Aleen, and I have a question about the history of the 14th Amendment. Um, I've read that uh, a number of the legislators, state and federal, who voted in favor of the amendment in the 1860s, and given the era, this is not really surprising, you know, publicly stated, particularly to the constituents, that, you know, don't worry, this doesn't mean you'll have to send your children to school with blacks, or that you'll have to sit next to blacks on, you know, public... Uh, um, you know, carriages and so on. Um, and, and so it seems a lot of the, those legislators interpreted the amendment that they themselves ratified in a way that's completely at odds with the way the Supreme Court and most of us today interpret it now. So what role does that play in the historical analysis of the amendment as far as the panelists are concerned? Who wants to start? Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, one is that... Uh, the, you know, you have to look at the text. You know, the text is, is much more important uh, than 
historical statements. Um, you have the text either there, before reading packets. Through. Yes, re read your, your, your Cato Institute thing. And um, so, uh, and of course, politicians say all kinds of things. Um, you know, before and after, um, uh, you know, legislation is, is passed. So, you know, it all has to be taken with a grain of salt, and what really matters is, is what they actually said. Um, a very good historical discussion, in addition to the, the Michael Rappaport one, uh, which in, involves the Privileges and Immunities Clause and why it uh, uh, ought to be uh, also read as not allowing racial discrimination in education. It was written by um, John Harrison, who's a professor at the University of Virginia in the, uh, uh, in the uh, Yale Law Journal. Um, for starters, though, if we just look at the text, um, the text of the 14th Amendment is about what states can and can't do, not about what Congress can and cannot do. So it's not inconsistent um, with, uh, you know, the, the congressman might have thought that, well, we in Congress can be trusted in this area to pass legislation, that the states cannot be trusted, uh, you know, in legislating in this area. So, even if the, uh, uh, the, the 14th Amendment is consistent with um, federal legislation in the District of Columbia segregating schools, um, that doesn't mean that the text of the 14th Amendment allows states to have segregated schools. And that's you know, uh, you know, just you know, one example of why you, I think you, you need always to read the, uh, what was actually uh, said and not give too much weight to um, what every congressman was was saying to you know to to his constituents. Um, I'm glad that you brought up though the fact that um, uh, the people who were talking that, that some of these statements um, um, would be consistent with a very politically incorrect uh, interpretation of the 14th Amendment. Because one of, one of the criticisms that I had of, of um, uh, some of the so-called originalist arguments that were being made in favor of racial preferences in the Fisher case was that uh, if we take them seriously, they would have allowed, they, they would have required Brown versus Board of Education to be overruled, uh, which I think is, ought to give some pause to how seriously they ought to be taken. Uh, yeah, so I'd definitely like to respond to that. So, I, you know, on this question of state versus federal racial preferences, Roger mentioned an um, exchange back and forth with my colleague David Gans um, that started on SCOTUS blog, and uh, David uh, responded to these arguments, and I commend you all to um, his uh, writings on this area, David Gans, G-A-N-S. Um, He's a wonderful, uh, wonderful scholar on this. Um, you know, I think your question is great because it gets to sort of a, a you know, uh, in fact, Justice Scalia talked about this yesterday in his talks at GW. And he said, you know, when we talk about um, originalism, we're not talking about the original expected application of the um, text of the Constitution. And you're absolutely right. The um, men who passed the 14th Amendment um, who enacted it, um, the people who ratified it 
were not saints. They were not angels. Um, and you know this. If men were angels, no government would be needed. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, or maybe there are some women. I don't know. But um, you know. Uh, but what's glorious and what we celebrate today uh, is the language that was enacted. And fortunately for us, um, these demons uh, and these um, uh, prejudices of the day did not make their way into the text of the Constitution. And so when we apply uh, the 14th Amendment, we look first to that uh, majestic language that I confessed my love for earlier. And um, you know that, I think, is what um, we start with when we start with a text and history method. Thank you. Well, seeing no, qu well, oh, there's a delay. There's, there's a hand right there. Phil Harvey, um, has there been any litigation or do we expect any litigation over the issue of uh, discrimination against Asians in college admissions, which I take it is a fairly widespread phenomenon? Gail? Very widespread indeed. Um, the Department of Education has looked into it, but you can't trust the Department of Education. They didn't do a very good job. Uh, I am not aware of a lawsuit. Are you, Roger? I'm not. Uh, this was certainly something that was pointed out to the Supreme Court uh, in in the, uh, the briefs that were filed in, in Fisher that it's you know it's not just whites who are being discriminated against. So There's yet another problem with uh, you know allowing politically correct racial preferences is that pretty soon you're discriminating not only against those bad privileged white people, but also against uh, Asians and a lot of other minority groups as well. One of the I know that, that some of the public interest law firms that are interested in this issue have desperately wanted an Asian pl plaintiff. Uh, but one of the problems in this area of the law is that it's no fun to be a plaintiff. Um, if you were to scan through the internet the names of, of, of Abigail Fisher, Jennifer Grotz, just scandalous things are said about these women. Um, and, you know, Abigail Fisher is, a, is you know, a young college student, um, and she was pretty brave for being willing um, to put her name on this lawsuit. Um, and it's not easy to find people that are. Um, so if you know of an Asian student who might be interested in such a lawsuit, call me. <laughs> a lot of the times the university will just uh, offer the person admission, the potential plan of admission to make this all uh, go away. I'm actually aware of one or two cases at my alma mater at Princeton, which of course is a private institution uh, of Asians that, uh, uh, that, that sued or at least threatened to sue. And I think, I don't know if there's any active litigation still ongoing, if there's been a, a settlement. Nothing public has been either resolved or, or, or ruled uh, upon uh, in any event. I, I do know that uh, some of the more compelling evidence that was presented to the court in Fisher in this regard uh, is that uh, the argument that the University of Texas was making was that, you know, there's not a critical mass of uh, blacks and Hispanics, for example, and yet there are more Hispanics uh, on campus uh, than there are Asians, and yet Asians have achieved a critical mass and, and Hispanics have not. I want to ask before we close, Gail, what is your theory on what exactly was, this is pure speculation, what exactly was going on behind the scenes for those eight and a half months? Uh, clearly, you know, multiple opinions, nobody got a majority, who knows, Robert's twisting, who knows what, I mean, what, what is your just pure speculative theory? Oh, I mean, my, my, my theory's not worth anything. 
um, you know, the thing that ran through my mind was that, that you know, there was a greater willingness to, to come down harder on the University of Texas earlier on in that term, and then when it became clear that Shelby County was going to go the way they were, somebody got cold feet. I mean, that's my theory. But that's, you know, that and, the, and $2 will get you a cup of coffee. Anybody else want to offer a theory? I don't know, but I'm sure it was interesting. <laughs> well, we'll all find out from the justices' papers 50, 60 years from now, so stick around. If we live long enough. <laughs> uh, let's thank, thank all of our panelists. <laughs>